Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome, Team Buck. Great to have you with me here in the Freedom Hut on this Friday. Appreciate so much that you're going to hang out with me for a bit. A lot of things to talk about on today's show. Uh, We will get into the latest on uh, Trump and the obstruction charges polling around uh, Trump. Amazon, the digital online giant, the the super company, has uh, bought Whole Foods in a multi-billion dollar deal. This may affect your local grocery store. This may affect how you get your food, my friends. So this does matter. This isn't just a a thing for the Wall Street folks to pay attention to. Uh, Also, we'll talk about the uh, situation the Trump administration is currently in with regard to deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA, and deferred action for the parents of arrivals, DAPA, which is an Obama administration. Well, they're both Obama administration executive orders. Uh, And then we'll get into some history of witch hunts. The first witches, the uh, witch hunt and witch trial craze in Europe in the 1500s and 1600s, the role of the church in it. And yes, we'll end with the Salem witch trial, all of that in the third hour of the show today. So uh, much to discuss. Oh, and also we've got the Daily Caller, uh, Editor-in-Chief Vince Colonese joining us in just a little bit to talk about uh, their exclusive on an assassination list that was found in the pocket of that shooter who tried to uh, kill Uh, members of Congress just a few days ago. Um, So we'll have the latest for you on that. But first, uh, this has been a week where I think everyone uh, has who follows what's going on in the country. Some people just don't care, and I understand that. Some people aren't paying very close attention to the tone. Uh, The the rhetoric of the media doesn't really affect them in their day-to-day lives. And one of the problems of being in media is that you tend to have an outsized view of how important that media narrative can be. Um, It's powerful, but how powerful? You don't necessarily have the best context when you're in the middle of it and or a a part of it. Maybe in the middle of it for someone like me sounds a bit too grandiose. Uh, But I've been worried for a while that the way that they describe the administration, the way that people refer to Donald Trump, that the tone uh, would, would, yes, turn into... Uh, violence on a on a smaller scale, I thought originally than what we saw this week. Uh, I didn't think it would necessarily become lethal as quickly as or see, uh, close to lethal as quickly as it has. But it's also felt like there's been n- very little uh, good faith and very little fun and very little joy in political conversations among adversaries. This is apart from the issue of violence. I'm trying to step back from how the context of the political conversation may have influenced specifically what happened earlier this week to just what's going on in the country overall, which these are tied together. But uh, there 
is a sense right now that I have that you you really can't discuss Trump with anybody uh, unless they agree with you, meaning either you're somebody who has a blinding hatred for Trump or you are a supporter of Trump and you can go and you can discuss it with people that are agree. But there's no fun in, in political discussion right now if you're on opposite sides. And this is for people that do this professionally, but I, I also see it in in day-to-day life. I see this happening uh, in a variety of contexts. Well, here's an example. I mean, I know for, uh, well, people have run this experiment, but I know that if I walked around New York City and I was wearing a Make America Great Again t-shirt, that people would think that there was something wrong with me, that most of the passersby would think less of me, they might sneer at me, they might throw something at me, they might even hit me. They would certainly say something to me, I think, in many cases. And it would not be complimentary. Uh, that's unacceptable. We shouldn't be at that place. And I know that we are in this constant back and forth between, well, the First Amendment means you can say nasty things. The First Amendment means that there's going to be the robust exchange of ideas that includes offensive ideas, includes political figures that you may have a disdain for. All of that, I understand that. But we can also push back against the extremes, we can say that there's no need for this. And it, it has been different in a post-Trump era. I mean, I've been working now in media since 2011, uh, so six years. And before that, I was an intelligence officer, as I've mentioned to you on, on the show, and you can see in my bio. But I, I remember what it was like covering the Obama administration. I also remember the election uh, between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, and there was, it was not even close to what we're seeing now. And I think we should be honest about that. Sure, you can point back to 1968, or you can, of course, you can point all the way back to the Civil War or other periods in our history where political uh, dissent, infighting, nastiness, uh, acrimony between both sides... Real viciousness. That's, that's, I think, the right word. A, a political viciousness had overtaken the country. Uh, I understand that there may be cycles at work here, but we're at the top of a vicious political cycle right now. Uh, I don't think it gets much worse than this without things really getting out of hand because there's no room for discussion. There's no room for, uh, there's no room for a back and forth, and that's deeply troubling. And sh- I understand that the... Uh, the overall symptom or the overall reality here is not one of constant violence. We're not, we're not in the midst of what you see in other countries where a political dispute turns into uh, people just fighting it out on the streets. Uh, although there has been some of that. Uh, the, I know the, the Daily Caller has pulled together a list of attacks against conservatives. You can go read it. And it's it's troubling to see, but there was nothing on the scale yet of what we saw this week. And so that's why I think we have this additional uh, reflection that's going on right now, this self-reflection uh, for anybody who's trying to be honest about what's happening in the country. This, this is different. This is, it's too much. And those who are thought leaders, opinion leaders, those who transmit information to the masses about what's happening in this country, who shape perception of the administration, of our, of politics, and and of what the government is doing day in and day out, should take stock of where they are, where they are in all this, and and what uh, what role they play. Um, and I don't mean what role they play specifically in political violence, but 
in creating an atmosphere that is so toxic that you feel like you can't have a conversation with anybody about this stuff. And that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. I would rather it be a situation where I could sit down with a Bernie Sanders supporter and talk, although actually Bernie Sanders supporters sometimes are a little more uh, willing to hear you out, in my experience, than even the the uh, hardcore Hillary supporters. They're very dogmatic about it all the time. The Bernie people will, will sometimes listen. Uh, in, again, this is in my experience with other people in media and, and who they support. Uh, their ideas might be a little crazier than the Hillary people, but at least they, because they don't feel a sense of what I think is the only thing that is right and the establishment agrees with me, therefore there's no discussion. That's part of the problem with the, the Hillary supporters. The Bernie people are still trying to win the argument. They don't feel like the argument has already been won for them, so they'll usually engage. But this is really the exception. Uh, the exception is that you can have a civil discourse on any of this, and it is to the country's great detriment. I, I find it uh, tiring um, to come into uh, a news cycle day in and day out that is so fraught with, with just anger and wanting to see uh, other Americans, uh, watching Americans and reading about Americans who want to see other Americans brought low, imprisoned, uh, destroyed, have their reputations ruined. And it, it, it can start to feel a bit soul-crushing. It can start to be depressing, actually. And that's one of the reasons why I, I like to mix it up so much here in the Freedom Hut and talk to you about all kinds of things, as we will today on the show. Um, because otherwise, I, I, I listen occasionally to, to other shows just to get a sense of uh, what, what the tone is uh, from some of my fellow radio hosts. And uh, you know, without going into any specifics, obviously, because I wouldn't want them going into specifics about a critique of my show, but just being angry about either how angry people are at Trump or just being angry at how ineffectual the Republicans are right now, um, that, that to me is, is not, that's not healthy. That's not enough. Uh, that, there's a place for that, but I don't think that that should be the mainstay of what people spend their time thinking about every day because thoughts do matter. I mean, the, the imp thoughts have implications for action, and there's a negativity that has overtaken political discourse right now that's just... Uh, it's just too much. It, it should be, and look, there's always going to be people out there who are nasty, and there's you're, you're going to see, unfortunately, the elevation of writers and pundits and others who make a, a real point of just being undermining and uh, being unkind and rude and, and, and vicious. Uh, that, unfortunately, works in this business. It works for politicians. It works in the media. And I guess for some people it works in their day-to-day -day lives. But there has been something of a shift away from that as a an ex, uh, that as uh, aberrant, right? That's outside of the norm to that's now straight up the norm. That's how everyone's acting these days, it seems. Not everybody, but a majority of people. And uh, I am annoyed by it. Um, I think that it's it, enough is enough. And the the uh, the seemingly unfiltered rage and counter rage and uh, it doesn't help fix the country. It doesn't make people feel better. And over time, I, I think that it really has it really causes damage to the country. I, I, I do believe that. Uh, and I think we're already there. 
uh, where there's a, a widespread shortcoming in the way that we talk about politics. It, it has been overcome by, it has been uh, too deeply uh, infected with a viciousness. And I really do think that's the best word, a political viciousness. And we, we need to stop with that. And it's much more, obviously, an issue with the Democrats. In my mind, that as Republicans, of course, every Democrat would say, oh, you just say that because you're a Republican, and I understand. But uh, when you see the way they've been treating this administration and the way that they talk about them, I don't know how much, uh, I don't know how much more there really is um, that we can do this on the one hand, on the other hand stuff. It's particularly nasty with uh, with Trump and oh wait, it's action movie quote Friday as well. So let's uh, let's make sure we get that going too. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Move to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays. Indeed. Let's see what you got. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. Do you think the discourse is too vicious when it comes to politics right now? Are people being too nasty to each other? Or just call them with an action movie quote. Whatever you want. We'll be right back. From when I was dealing with Occupy Wall Street and some of its associated progressive movements here in New York City when I was covering them for The Blaze, that there were people who, you know, one moment they're all about peace and and uh, and happiness and you know helping the poor and the next they're like screaming in people's faces with spittle coming out of their mouths and yelling about you know oppression and you know racism and everything you're like whoa and i i think that the progressive mind because it's so much of progressivism is based in emotion instead of in reason uh you see those violent swings in mood um you know or you see that Perhaps violent swing isn't really the right way to put it, but you, you see that that radical shift from people who talk about being so open and tolerant and considerate and wanting to help other people to being really nasty and uh, being very aggressive. Uh, you know, the, you go from one to the other because the ideology is not based in uh, any anchored principles. It's really mostly what what does one feel and it's also what does one feel about oneself for having those feelings, right? So I'm a progressive. I care about the climate because I'm a good person. And those who don't care about the climate are bad people, therefore. And I should do things to those bad people because they're bad and I'm good. And that's how the progressive mind works on a lot of these different issues. And you, I think you see this playing out uh, in a variety of ways across the country, Um Let's take uh, Tom in Ohio on WWVA. What's up, Tom? Hi, Buck. Uh, first of all, uh, you mentioned that uh, they were against Trump. I, I don't think they're, they're against Trump. They're against what Trump represents. Wait, who's against Trump? I'm sorry, I missed that. That that the uh, people who that are you know against Trump, that that they aren't against Trump. They're against what he represents. You don't think they dislike Trump personally? I, I think they have a real personal animus against Trump in general. Okay. Now, if Trump, however, uh, if he if he wasn't a conservative, if he wasn't uh, a nationalist, and if he wasn't a uh, capitalist, if instead he were handing out uh, Trump uh, smartphones uh, to everybody and free college tuition and free health care, they love him. So it's not it's not against him. It's against the policies that he represents. 
And likewise, I think that's why you're not going to have this kumbaya moment between the uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans because of the fact that there's this great divide of whether the country should go further down the path of socialism and liberalism and globalism, whether we should retreat and go back to conservatism and nationalism and uh, capitalism. Well, a a couple things. On your point about how they'd like, like if Trump had Bernie Sanders policies, uh, yeah, the, the left would like him. But that's that's more function of just you. No matter who you are as a person, if if you have leftist policies, they'll excuse everything about you, right? So when when I say that when I say they don't like Trump, yeah, they don't like his they don't like that he's uh, that he's brash, that they don't like that he talks trash to, about and to the media, they don't like these call out the establishment. But yeah, it's 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 his politics that they object to. But you see, if you're a progressive, you view politics and the person as inextricable; they are one and the same. So it's it's really a different in perception as well about what it means to hold certain beliefs, right? See, uh, for for me, it's like if someone convinced me that uh, I, I don't know, if somebody convinced me that you know we can't have a flat tax rate, Buck, because of X Y Z, it's got to be at least twenty five percent if you want the following, you know, if you want a strong military and the following policies. If they could convince me of that, I, I would change my mind and not think that I'm a different person. If you're a progressive and, you you know, you all of a sudden say, you know what, Obamacare is kind of failing. It's like you're a heretic. You're no longer a progressive. You're, you're no longer part of that tribe anymore uh, because it's so closely aligned with who you are as a person. Right. So it, it's really not for the left. It's really not about the policy. It's about what holding that belief or, or believing in that policy represents about the individual. You know what I'm saying? Does that. I know what you're saying, but I, I, I think you're taking it too deeply from the standpoint of, of – of the, the, see, I look at the big picture. I look at how do we resolve Yeah, hey, I like the big picture. And, and on the big picture, I think it's more, as I pointed out, and a good example of that is that, you know, Trump's no good because he's wealthy and he's a billionaire. Well, Warren Buffett is a billionaire. You know, the Kennedys are, are multi-millionaires, if not billionaires, if you combine all their wealth. So, I mean, it's not— it's Oh, no, it's, they're, they're not, they don't dislike Trump because he's rich. I mean, they'll use that as a, as a way to try to get at him and say, you know, but, but they, yeah, they're, the, the Democrats love rich. But tons of the, the richest members of Congress are Democrats. That's my point, and 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 what I'm getting at is that I think I think if you if you look at it as what Obama and Hillary represented and what Trump Trump represents, it's which path we're going down. As I mentioned, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, there's a big divide in the country. Thanks for calling in, Tom. Uh, there's no question that the, the difference in philosophy now is is getting larger over time between left and right. Um, you know, this is. We would think at this point, maybe because of, for example, the failures of Obamacare, there'd be more Democrats who'd say, yeah, you know what, this isn't so good. But no, they're they're doubling down. Look at with the stimulus with Obama, right? What was the problem with the stimulus, everybody? Spent a trillion dollars, didn't really do anything. Uh, What was the problem? Well, you might think that they would all come over and agree and say, oh, you know what? Government spending like that doesn't actually have the effect on the economy. They think it will. They won't do it again. Oh, no, no, no. It just wasn't enough. This is like the old argument about communism. Is communism a bad system? No, it's that it's never been done right. Well, progressive statists just think that there's never enough government control and it's never spent enough money. So we're getting further and further apart. The 
the Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields High. All right, welcome back, everyone. We have Vince Colonese on the line. He is the editor-in-chief of The Daily Caller. Mr. Colonese, great to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Buck. So you guys at The Daily Caller have quite an exclusive assassination list found on James Hodgkinson, the shooter uh, from that baseball practice with uh, members of Congress that he was shooting at. Uh, assassination list found on on James Hodgkinson's body. Vince, tell us about this. Yeah, we've, we've discovered tonight that uh, James Hodgkinson was actually carrying a list. It was written on a notepad. Uh, inside of his pocket, and on that notepad, we know of at least three names that were written down, all members of Congress, all members of the uh, House Freedom Caucus, of course, the most conservative members of the House, Alabama's uh, Representative Mo Brooks, South Carolina Representative Jeff Duncan, and Arizona Representative Trent Franks. All three names were on that list. Um, Further, we can confirm the FBI has definitely contacted at least one of those three congressmen to inform them of their inclusion on the list. We were able to get all this information um, from sources who asked for anonymity in order to speak about the investigation. Um, None of these offices uh, were willing to comment on the record, instead directing us each time to Capitol Police and um, also the FBI's Washington field office. Um, that FBI field office we spoke with tonight uh, is handling the investigation, but again, also declined comment, citing the ongoing investigation. Uh, all three of these guys, again, are members of the House Freedom Caucus. Two of them were actually at the field this week when this when this went down. You'll recall Representative Duncan. He was the guy who was leaving the field and spoke with the shooter briefly before the shooting. And Hodgkinson had come up to him and asked, are these Democrats or Republicans? And he answered that they were Republicans before leaving the field. Um, Congressman Mo Brooks was still present there when uh, the shooting began. Uh, so, so one of one of the one of the names on the list was one of the congressmen that the shooter Hodgkinson, uh, the, the shooter Hodgkinson asked a congressman if they were Republicans, not realizing it seems then that that congressman was one of the names on his list. Right? He must not have known yes. what the guy looked like, or must not have recognized him. I mean, that's just chilling. Yeah, Jeff Duncan, whose name was in the shooter's pocket, was the guy who spoke to uh, uh, to Hodgkinson and and acknowledged, yes, these are Republicans. Um, and so that was that was again just minutes before he opened fire. It seems Congressman Duncan had left the field by that point, and um, so very haunting addition to this story tonight um, that the FBI was discovered that, and again all of the. You know, publicly right now, all of the members of Congress whose names appear on that list are uh, quiet this evening about the issue. And again, everybody's sort of saying, hey, we're just relying on the FBI to conduct an investigation. But this this is deeply suggestive of the fact that this shooter was was interested in political assassinations. Yeah, this was a mass assassination. I've been saying it all week, Vince. This is this was a mass assassination attempt with surveillance of the targets beforehand. It was deliberate. It was it was planned out. He had specific individuals in mind. He was trying to get as many of them in a in a vulnerable spot as possible. And were it not for the presence, I mean, my understanding is it, it's possible that there might not have been Capitol Police. I mean, I, I don't know if they're there all the time or not, but it seemed well, from the reporting. I, Go ahead. 
Uh, I can speak to that to the extent that I, I'm aware of this practice. In 2013, I attended that practice with Congressman Louis Gohmert from Texas, and we were we were there on assignment covering just a day in the life of Louis Gohmert, which of course is hilarious. But specifically, following him to this baseball practice in the morning, at which he was very excited to be there. It was just, you know, it was it was a good day. A bunch of middle-aged guys running around the field, shagging balls, batting practice. And when I was there, I was struck by how the, by the fact that there, did, there seemed to be no security there. Now, at the time, I don't recall if there was a member of leadership present, but I do know for a fact it was just a bunch of congressmen sort of huddled around. I was standing on the field with a digital SLR taking photos. We had another reporter with us um, kind of just chatting with the congressman. And a couple of the congressmen even asked, like, hey, who are these guys? Just curious about who we were. We were strangers to them and most of us. Um, so it was, oh, these are just some reporters who are following Louie around, and it was good. And it was really, you know, it's again, they started at 6.30 in the morning at this field, and almost no, it's, you know, without fanfare. We were practically the only outsiders there. Very few members of the public even knew that these congressmen practiced there with any regularity. And, uh, you know, it's really, it was really tragic, of course, to see this all go down, and especially at a place that I had actually seen before, and I'd been to that practice, and those congressmen, really value that time. They have a trem- they have a great time even practicing getting ready for the congressional baseball game. We're speaking to uh, Vince Colonese. He is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Caller. Daily Caller has an exclusive that an assassination list was found on James Hodgkinson's body. He is the attempted uh, mass assassin of members of Congress at that baseball game earlier in the week. Uh, Vince, you're down in D.C. And, and you're dealing with a lot of the political reporters in a day-to-day sense uh do you think that there's there's any is there any chastening of the of the tone is there do you, do you think there'll be any change in the rhetoric or by next week will, will we be back to hearing a lot about how trump is a traitor and republicans w- want the whole world to die because of climate change etc cetera, etc cetera? no i i i you know unfortunately this is going to revert to form too quickly um we i mean just yesterday you had Nancy Pelosi stand up and say that the, that the the way we got here rhetorically was the Republicans and the politics of personal destruction leveled against Hillary Clinton and the Clintons in the 90s. Now, now you explain to me how Hillary Clinton, of all people, and how persecuted she supposedly is, could come up in the wake of an attack on Republican members of Congress. Uh, I don't really get that, and in, in Nancy Pelosi's case, she she immediately invoked. Republicans, and then she went on to say something like, "But you know, it's not today's not the day for me to expand on that point too much." I I mentioned, and I know a lot of people have been talking about, and the New York Times actually retracted the part that was so both inflammatory and incorrect. But that the Times editorial board would respond the day of this attempted mass assassination with, "Well, maybe this has to do with the political climate." But we know Sarah Palin was responsible for what happened to Gabby Giffords, which is what they said. I mean, they were not they were not yeah. uh, mincing any words about it at all. I, I think that shows a, a discon- that's beyond just a political disagreement. That's a disconnect with reality. I mean, th- that's a form of political yeah. delusion. Totally. And, and I've said it earlier this week. It's expressive and, 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 and symbolic of the bubble that surrounds places like The New York Times. Ask any conservative about that story. And they can recall that instantly, that this idea that Sarah Palin had a connection with the Gabby Gifford shooting was a bunch of garbage that was sort of propagated by the left-wing blogosphere. That was fake and news, by the way. That, that, that would, tr- would accurately be called fake news. For sure. And the fact that no one inside the New York Times editorial board even could bring that to mind 
is very suggestive of how they think about issues on a daily basis. I have one more example for you, actually. Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, immediately upon the conclusion of the shooting, goes up to a microphone and says, this is not the time for politics, and then goes on to start talking about gun control. A reporter standing there, to his credit, instantly challenges him. I thought you just said this wasn't about politics. And Terry McAuliffe ends up kind of, kind of squirming away from the question. He also said something ludicrous, which he had to correct. Again, a reporter called him out on it. He said 93 million Americans a day are killed by gun violence. Huh. That's interesting because we'd all be dead by the end of the week if that was if that statistic was correct. Ninety three million Americans a day. And he didn't even so, correct himself. right? I mean, anyone can make a you know, you can flub a number that'll happen. But usually if you say something that's that outrageous, you know, people no. mess up, you know, billion and trillion. Ninety three million Americans die from gun violence. That's not something well, that a normal person says and then doesn't think twice about. It's instructive of how he thinks about this issue, which is which is I'm absolutely right. Forget the statistics. Who cares? That doesn't even matter. I can just make up a number. But the point is we need to get control of guns in this country. That's the real problem today. When, if anything, Buck, if you and I look at this event this week, if anything, the one thing I left thinking was, thank God good guys with guns were present. Otherwise, that list that was in James Hodgkinson's pocket may have been sold out. Vince Colonese is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief. He's got an exclusive in the Daily Caller right now, assassination list. Found on James Hodgkinson's body. You should go to thedailycaller.com and read it. Vince, thank you so much for your reporting, and have a good weekend, sir. Buck, you too. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Sis wants to call in, and she's here with us now. What's up, Dr. Lee? Hi, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Good to hear from you. What's going on? Oh, not a lot. I just have a movie quote for you. Okay. All righty. So I'll go ahead and go with it. Um, so I guess you have a choice. Do you want a war or do you want to just give me a gun? Uh, uh, what is it? <laughs> it's the new John Wick 2. I haven't seen that one yet, so you got me, but I can't say that that was uh, – it, it wasn't like it slipped in my mind. I haven't seen it. I, I'm a, I like John Wick 1. In fact, uh, I went to the the baths that are in that movie. They're actually here in New York City in Tribeca. Remember that? Remember, there's a scene with the Russian mobster guy, and he's trying to take him out, and there's in, in what looks like a sort of a Turkish bath. It's a real thing here in New York. Wow, that's cool. I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a pretty cool place. There's an ice plunge. You jump into that. That's uh, that's interesting. And then they have other other temperature baths. So, yes, it's a, it's a, quite an indulgence. If you're doing a, a treat yourself day, uh, the, this is a fun thing to do in downtown Manhattan. Um, but anyway, Dr. Lee, uh, give the mister my best, and thank you very much for calling in. Um, no way to... Bring this up without a bit of a hard turn from hearing from uh, my old friend uh, from Original Squad Team Buck there, Dr. Lee. Uh, no, no way to do this without it being a hard turn. So just brace yourself for a minute. And I don't have too much time to talk about it, but I did want to uh, give you some thoughts because we just have a verdict that came in today on this case of a, of a 20-year-old uh, young woman who has been convicted of involuntary manslaughter in Massachusetts. Her name is Michelle Carter. Um, and three years ago, uh, what the, the facts of the case are that she had a, I, I don't know if it would be, he would be considered her boyfriend, but an, an associate, a friend, 
Um, they had mostly interacted online. They'd met in person a few times, named uh, Roy and uh, Con or sorry, Conrad Roy. And he was emotionally troubled and had already com had already attempted suicide in the past. And Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter had a back and forth, mostly uh, via text message and and um, uh, social media. And she, for weeks leading up to uh, Roy's suicide in 2014, was discussing it with him via text message and encouraging him. Now it's it's difficult. It's difficult to read. I mean, it's uh, that that somebody could be uh, so cold and sadistic as this young woman. Um, it's it's hard to fathom. She wrote things like, "You're finally going to be happy in heaven. No more pain. It's okay to be scared, and it's normal. I mean, you're about to die." Um, and in fact, when Roy uh, got into a car and had set up the car to kill himself via carbon uh, monoxide poisoning uh, from the exhaust. Uh, he got out. He decided at the last minute he wasn't going to go through with it. And she texted him, get back in. So she she had plenty of opportunities, even after the weeks of uh, sadistic uh, texts that were encouraging him to commit suicide, um, she had an opportunity to, to finally save this young man's life, or I should say encourage him to save his own life, and she did not take it. Uh, in fact, she did the opposite. She, she told him to get back in the car and to kill himself. Now, this sets—she was found guilty, by the way, by a judge. Uh, she did not want a jury trial. She wanted a bench trial, and the judge found her— guilty. And now she has uh, a sentencing coming up in August for involuntary manslaughter. She could get 20 years, up to 20 years in prison for this. Uh, she was a juvenile at the time. She was 17 at the time of the suicide. Uh, so uh, this is a, a really uh, horrific and, and tragic case. Um, but it also sets a precedent, and it's one that I, I know is See, I, I know the initial impulse here is uh, this young woman was uh, being evil and uh, cold and uh, unfeeling and sociopathic uh, in her communications with this young man. But now you have a legal precedent that's been set because this young man who took his own life uh, he did it. There was no, no one was there to assist him. No one, no one, uh, you know, turned the car on. There was there was no help in the act, and it was his free agency, his choice to do this. Um, and I understand in this case because it's so extreme, because there's such um, excruciating sadism in these text messages when you read them from this young woman to this uh, young man now deceased that there is a, a basic human impulse that, that justice is that this, this woman needs to pay. Uh, she needs to pay for what she did. But there's also the legal aspect of this, and now you start to play this out further beyond this case, and do we have a circumstance where if somebody in a quick exchange, for example, 
on Facebook or on, or on Twitter. I'm sure some of you have seen this, and, and it's even written in a way that sometimes is supposed to be humorous but snide. Uh, they'll, say, they'll say, quote, kill yourself, you know. Um, they'll res- somebody will respond to somebody else on social media in that way. If that person then goes and actually takes his or her life a day, a week, a month later, is the person who wrote to someone that they've never even met, kill yourself. Are, are they responsible for that now? Are they legally, criminally culpable for that act? If the answer is no, we need to establish what the legal rationale is for it. Because if we're going to take the act of suicide out of the hands of an individual and say that somebody else is responsible for convincing that person to do it, remember now, facing 20 years in prison for uh, involuntary manslaughter, that could have implications in other cases too. Uh, Also, without getting into the morality or um, the, the ethics of assisted suicide, what does that mean now? Um, in in states that are trying to make that or that are in the process of making that legal or uh, how does that affect the debate? But but more to the point um, here, if you tell someone uh, or if you if you use words and and tell someone that they should go, you know, oh, you should go take a long walk off a short pier or, you know, go or, you know, you're such an idiot. Go jump off a building. Somebody does that. You're now criminally responsible for it. I, I know this case is visceral. This one is this is terrible, what this girl did, the young woman did. Um, but the legal precedent is also troubling. Um, and if you, if you play out in your head and you look at this from the perspective of precedent, uh, now we have a situation where you know a few wrong words on social media, even if you have no intent of anything like this happening, this woman clearly did have this intent, it seems from the text, but even if you mean it, in a joking fashion, well, are you still going to be guilty of involuntary manslaughter? Are we going to leave it up to prosecutors to uh, divine intent here when it comes to words that then lead to someone else taking an action? There's some very tricky questions to be addressed. Um, but regardless, it's a tragedy here. We've got more coming up, team. I'll be right back. Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. All right, team, it's Friday, and we're joined by our friend for this freestyle of various news stories, Sean Davis. He is, of course, a co-founder of The Federalist. You can follow him on Twitter at SeanMDAV. His latest is that CNN botches basic gun fact, then refuses to correct the error. Mr. Davis, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, all right, well, let's start. we got a, a couple of news stories from today I want to get into. But first, uh, 
guns. Tell me about this specific error that happened here with CNN. But but also, I mentioned this yesterday. I wanted your take on it. My sense is that you're allowed to be a reporter, journalist, pundit, analyst, any of the above, and say in, incredibly incorrect and uh, ridiculous things about firearms. But as long as you're anti-firearm, it's like they don't care. That's right. And that, that's really the root of this particular error. It's CNN. Um, so according to law enforcement reports, uh, the shooter on Wednesday uh, used an SKS rifle, which is a World War II era Soviet rifle. And I believe he had a nine millimeter pistol in his possession. Um, so rather than just saying that, CNN and a whole bunch of other news outlets decided to go with this myth that the SKS is a variant of the AK-47, the scary Russian uh, actual assault rifle capable of fully automatic select fire, uh, highly illegal, um, prohibitively expensive. And this is kind of what they do whenever there's a shooting is that they need to make sure whatever gun was used. Uh, even if it was perfectly legal and would have been perfectly legal under any number of laws they constantly propose, they have to make sure it sounds as scary as possible. And whenever you point out to them that, you know, actually words mean things, and, and these words have specific meanings, and you can't just keep getting this stuff wrong, they just ignore you like it doesn't matter. They'll say, oh, well, you're quibbling about semantics. Well, yes, when you are constantly trying to ban guns based on features and function, yeah, being semantic is kind of important because you don't just get to pass a law that says scary guns are icky. They want to tell you that we need to ban all these bad guns, but when you force them to actually say, okay, we'll define what those bad guns are, they suddenly clam up, and it happens time and time and time again. What's this New York Times lie about gun laws to excuse leftist violence? I saw you also wrote this. Oh, yeah. So the the New York Times was basically playing the same game. They were going and uh, I believe in their their first editorial after the shooting, um, they uh, I don't recall specifically if they said it was fully automatic, but they bollocked up Virginia's gun laws. They said that uh, because he was in Virginia, which had lax gun laws, that he could legally get all these kinds of rifles, which is not true under federal law. If you are in a state where you're not a resident, you have to go to a federal firearms licensee, uh, and you have to get a background check to get any gun. If you get a long gun after you do your background check, you can pick it up there. Uh, if you want to buy a handgun, they have to ship it back to your state, and you can't even take possession of it until you go to an FFL in your state. This notion from the New York Times that you can just hop and skip across the nation, buying up guns wherever you want to go because uh, somebody doesn't have background check, it's a total lie. The second you cross a state line, you cannot legally possess or purchase a new weapon without a background check. Sean Davis is a co-founder of The Federalist. You know, Sean, the uh, news story just broke uh, within the last couple hours here that a jury has acquitted of uh, acquitted a Minnesota police officer in the shooting death of Philando Castile. Uh, this officer was acquitted of manslaughter charges. Uh, can you give everybody just the, the backstory in case anyone's forgotten of Philando Castile? And then I, I, let's talk about what you think about this case. But what happened here? So what happened is Castile, and I believe either his wife or his girlfriend, I, I don't I don't remember, uh, they got pulled over, uh, just kind of a garden variety traffic stop. And Castile, who had a valid concealed carry permit, was legally carrying a, a pistol, told the officer, I, I have a firearm. Just it's something that uh, concealed carriers are generally trained to do, be upfront and honest with police so they don't get spooked, they don't get scared. And what happened after he did that is the cop freaked out and said, don't reach for your weapon, don't reach for your weapon. And uh, according to what his uh, wife or girlfriend said, he was 
was going for his license. He was trying to get his license and insurance. This idea that he was going to con- you know, admit that he was carrying a weapon and then go and grab for it, it's crazy. And so the officer shot him, I think, seven times um, and, and killed him. And uh, in the jury today, now granted, I was not sitting in that courtroom. I didn't see what they did. The jury acquitted the officer of manslaughter. And uh, I just find it amazing because what happened to Castile is every concealed carrier's nightmare. That you're just minding your business, you get pulled over, you, you're forthright about uh, the fact that you're exercising your Second Amendment rights legally, and you get shot for it. Uh, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking and, and it's awful. And you have to wonder. Um, if if Philando Castile was John Smith, would this have happened? Would he have gotten shot? Yeah, it's a terrible tragedy. I feel really badly for Mr. Castile's uh, family, and this is tough. I mean, an officer charged uh, with manslaughter here. Um, I, I think the, I'm wondering if the officer can can be or would be uh, sued under wrongful death in in a civil court. Not that that obviously, uh, bring, but none of this can bring anybody back. So that doesn't really. Uh, factor into it but it just it this does feel um this this feels wrong uh this is gonna there and i assume sean that there were protests in the past uh, my sense of this is that there'll be more protests now and and the protesters at least as long as they remain peaceful and uh just expressing their first amendment rights they they seem to have a, they seem to have a pretty strong point here i i think they do this this to me and again i was not in the court so that is a very important and there is a video i should just note yeah. to everybody and you can watch the video and it's it's tough it's tough stuff to watch but go ahead yeah but, but this was not when, when we see all these police involved shootings this was not a complicated gray area one there's ones where you're like oh man i i, I don't know how i would have reacted there i can see where he was thinking um this particular one there was uh there was one i think his name was john crawford in ohio who was shot while he was talking on a cell phone and looking at an airsoft rifle in a Walmart by police. Those are ones where you, you see things like, how, how on earth is this justified? How on earth was justice served today? Um, there, there, there was no justification for what happened to Castile. And so, you know, if there are protests and they keep it peaceful, I totally get it. I, I, if, if a friend of mine, if that happened to them, they were minding their own business, legally caring, they got shot and killed, you better believe I would go out and protest. Um, so I, I totally understand where they're coming from. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I have a lot a lot of sympathy for the Castile family here and, and his friends. And, um, uh, you, you know, this this looks like a concealed carry law abiding concealed carry permit holder and a cop uh, cop made. I do believe the cop made an error. I don't think there was any animus, but it's a terrible error to make. And someone lost their life because of it. And it's uh, just tragedy all around. And I wonder what it'll turn into with these with these protests. I'm assuming the protests will be. Uh, getting going over the weekend. Uh, Sean, I wanted to switch gears, though, to the uh, the status of, in your mind right now of the Trump investigation. He's uh, been tweeting out the last 12 hours or so that uh, this is from the Donald himself. I'm being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director, witch hunt. And then despite the phony witch hunt going on in America, the economic and jobs numbers are great. Regulations way down, jobs and enthusiasm way up. Uh, do you think that Trump is causing prob- uh, causing issues for himself by tweeting? Or do you think that, as he says, the fake news media hates it when I use what has turned out to be my very powerful social media? I can go around that. Uh, I, I think he, he has a point, and also he's not helping himself. Um, I guess, from my perspective, I would love to know the actual facts. I would love to know what's being investigated. I would love to know what the evidence is. 
Um, if there was collusion and obstruction, you know, we deserve to know about it. The American people deserve to know. Congress deserves to know. What we don't deserve is this ongoing eight-month shadowy secret illegal leak campaign that is all smoke and no fire. And, you know, when Trump says the guy who recommended, the, the guy who told me uh, firing Comey would be justified is now overseeing an investigation of me uh, for engaging in a justifiable firing, yeah, he's right. Um, and and I'm, I'm kind of just beyond tired of all the innuendo, the leaking, the games being played. Let's just get this thing over with, get the facts out, do what we need to do to make sure justice is served, and move on. Do you think there's any scenario in which Trump actually fires Mueller? I, I've talked to a few people about this this week. I think that's too far even for Trump, although technically he could do it. Well, so uh, I learned my lesson from 2016 where I would go, I would write or I'd go on radio and I'd say, oh, he'll never do this. He'll never do that. I will never again say Trump will never do anything. Um, I think it is completely possible. My understanding of the special counsel, special prosecutor statute is that um, Trump personally cannot fire uh, a special counsel. That has to be done by either the AG or the deputy AG. Um, but I guess Trump could certainly fire the deputy AG and bring a new one. Um, so I'm, I'm skeptical or dubious of the legal mechanism by which Trump himself could personally fire Mueller. But I, I don't put it outside the realm of possibility at all that he may use his power you know, overseeing uh, DOJ. Well, well Sessions, um, Sessions has recused himself, so it would, it would be Rosenstein, right, or Rosenstein. And, and I don't get the sense Rosenstein would do that. I mean, he could he could get rid of Rosenstein. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's right. right. So, so that, that's what I mean. I it wouldn't. I will not put it out of the bounds of the possible that he could affect Mueller's firing uh, by changing around uh, the the DOJ hierarchy. Um, I just I learned my lesson from guessing what Trump can or will or never will do. Uh, so I'm not playing that game anymore. I got to say, you know, I'm very troubled by how many of my fellow Americans. It seems in the media and just across the country, uh, Democrats mostly, or pretty much all, uh, but they're so okay with the idea that a a process crime that gets a member of the Trump administration is somehow justice. I feel like everybody should be much more wary of these things, these statutes that exist where it's a little bit of interpretation. No one's hurt. No one's harmed. Nothing's been stolen. No one's been attacked, you know. But, but you know, when you're talking about things like obstruction or uh, the interpretation of perjury statutes, that, that seems to be the focus of this entire special counsel investigation. It should be much more troubling to people than it is, because that should put us all on edge. These are the these are the things people go to prison for who are good people and didn't do anything wrong. Everybody. Oh, I mean, look, let's look at Comey. Let's look at Comey's record on this. This is a man who said Hillary did nothing wrong, and who also prosecuted Martha Stewart for denying that she had committed a crime yep. that the DOJ never charged her with. Okay, Comey and Mueller together went after a scientist in the anthrax attack who had nothing whatsoever to do with it in one of the most heinous, botched criminal investigations in the history of the FBI. So can you you tell me what what happened there, by the way, because I know the Stewart and I know the Libby investigation very well. Uh, What happened with this scientist? I know you wrote about this recently. We're speaking to Sean Davis, the Federalist, by the way, everyone. Go ahead, Sean. So Molly Hemingway wrote a great piece exploring uh, Comey and Mueller's very long history of screwing up uh, 
criminal investigations. And one of them was of a scientist named Stephen Hatfield, um, and they had investigated him for a long time. They persecuted him. It's the guy who had taken the anthrax. And it turns out anthrax wasn't even his field of study. Like, there's no reason that he would have been involved in that. But they cooked up this little scheme where they said the dogs had discovered it on him. And the FBI dogs knew that he had done it. And they ended up having to settle with him for like a multi-million dollar suit um, for, for wrongful persecution. It, it was an absolute nightmare. And it was Comey and Mueller working together who did it. Why do these guys have the reputations they do is what I always want to ask. It's just crazy to me. I mean, the, 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 it's just uh, it's so obvious to me that there's a lot of political stuff going on with them. But all right, we got to leave it there for now. Have a great weekend, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Sean Davis, everybody, of thefederalist.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, team, hitting a quick break. We'll be right back. Therefore, effective immediately, I am canceling the last administration's completely one-sided deal with Cuba. President Trump deciding that uh, President Obama's legacy item of uh, loosening things up with regard to Cuba uh, will be no more. Here's uh, CNN reporting on this. Uh, Although Trump said he was completely canceling Obama's Cuba policy, the change uh, in posture is only a partial shift away from Obama's policy. Diplomatic relations between the United States and Cuba will remain open, as will the newly opened embassies in Washington and Havana. And there will be no further restrictions on the type of goods that Americans can take out of Cuba, including the country's popular rum and cigars. Woohoo! For those of you who like Cuban cigars and the rum, you're still good to go. Um, the changes, however, sorry, back to back to the uh, the news story here. The changes, however, do tighten restrictions on Cuba and ratchet up rhetoric on the Castro regime in hopes that it will lead to a transition of power on the island. So there there will be a, a, a bit of a return um, and that also mean a bit of a return to the policy pre-Obama and also, quote, the Trump administration will begin strictly enforcing the authorized exemptions that allow travel between the U.S. and Cuba and prohibit uh, commerce with Cuban businesses owned by the military and intelligence services. The president also directed Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to convene a task force on expanding Internet access on the island uh, and reiterate the United States opposition to efforts in the U.N. to lift the Cuban embargo until more is done. So, look, all right, that's what he's doing. So they're they're keeping a little bit of the uh, Obama administration uh, thaw in U.S.-Cuba relations, but... They're really just leaving open the lines of communication. They're still trying to take a a punitive and somewhat adversarial posture toward the regime, which I I think makes a lot of sense. Look, first of all, that there was ever a time in this country when you'd get in trouble for having Cuban cigars. I mean, cigars are legal, but you can't have Cuban cigars because of the embargo is just nonsense. All right. This is like the prohibition on so many levels of many of many different things I find uh, to be unhelpful and, uh, quite honestly, just a, b- a bad idea from the government's perspective. Uh, but that you're, pro- but that something could be a legal substance. But if it comes from one country, it's illegal. I think that's silliness. And I don't know if Cuban rum is particularly good or not, but I'm sure it's quite tasty. Uh, although I don't drink much rum, I got to. That's rare for me to drink rum. Uh, like I never go to a bar and I'm like, give me rum on the rocks, right? I usually think of rum as what 
you know, uh, college kids on spring break drink with lots of mixers and stuff in it. Anyway, uh, the administration, though, is still saying that Cuba has to tighten up its human uh, its human rights record. It needs to open up for free elections. Um, and he hasn't forgotten something that I think is particularly important, which is that this regime is still a tyrannical regime. These are still the same people in charge. Can you? These are still people who we should not view as just being uh, no problem at all because they are tyrants. They are dictators. Um, here's what he said. For nearly six decades, the Cuban people have suffered under communist domination. To this day, Cuba is ruled by the same people who killed tens of thousands of their own citizens. While imprisoning innocents, it has harbored cop killers, hijackers, and terrorists. It has supported human trafficking, forced labor, and exploitation all around the globe. This is the simple truth of the Castro regime. My administration will not hide from it, excuse it, or glamorize it. Did you hear much of any of that from the Obama administration? In fact, the media went along with Obama's actions towards Cuba as though Cuba was this injured and almost innocent party to American Yankee imperialist aggression of some kind. Uh, you know, the the media's love affair with all communist status regimes uh, certainly extends to Cuba. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, the romanticism, whether it's Michael Moore with his documentary or uh, any number of celebrities who travel to Cuba and talk about what a great place it is, what a great healthcare system it has, which is not even true, by the way. There's different healthcare system for the connected versus the average Cuban citizen. Um, but Trump hasn't forgotten that this is a regime that's got to go. And so he is adjusting the policy accordingly. And uh, I think it's entirely sensible. And I think the president should be applauded for it. But uh, it also is uh, undoing one of Obama's legacy items, which I'm sure is going to uh, rankle the reporters that supported him and uh, the Democrat Party in general. Uh, team, we're going to hit a quick break coming up here. We've got much more show coming. Be right back. Is President Trump's immigration policy going to be? Uh, I think it's an entirely fair question to ask based on the latest news we see today. Here's the New York Times. President Trump will not immediately eliminate protections for the so-called dreamers, undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as small children, according to new memorandums issued by the administration Thursday night. But White House officials said Friday morning that Mr. Trump had not made a decision about the long-term fate of the program and might yet follow through on a campaign pledge to take away work permits from the immigrants or deport them. The Department of Homeland Security announced that it would continue the Obama-era program intended to protect those immigrants from deportation and provide them with work permits so they can find legal employment. So here is the president who won on a platform of immigration enforcement. You know, I remember him saying, you know, they, they have to they have to go. You know, I'm sorry, but they, they have to go. Uh, the president is now, it seems, uh, at least delaying, at least delaying the issue of what to do for 
dreamers. Um, I think this is th there. There could be some uh, strategy that the president is deploying here because while he is keeping in place uh, the deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA, that's one policy. He did this week get rid uh, in the same memorandums from last night, uh, memoranda. He did get rid of DAPA, which is the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents. So the parents of DREAMers were also covered under this Obama administration policy, and Trump has rescinded that. Uh, so now that was never officially implemented. It was stuck in the courts, but that was an executive order. And you will recall this is how— Obama tried to get through what was effectively executive amnesty, right? It was extending it beyond what, uh, extending beyond, you know, anything that had been done uh, in the past, right? President Obama decided that he was just going to push forward and with pen and phone uh, give a legal status to people who were the parents of those who arrived in America or brought to America illegally as children, uh, but that was in the courts. Uh, that was still working its way through, so it was never fully implemented. The Department of Homeland Security under Obama uh, was in the process at the time of trying to come up with uh, work permits because the, the plan, and people often forget this now, the plan that Obama was trying to implement was to uh, go forward with this, make this a, a done deal, uh, before the courts could even look at it. Because if people have work permits, that they've been granted an official, uh, an official right to be in the country, uh, then it's very hard. To t it's much harder to take it away. So, look, tr Trump had said during the campaign he would get rid of DACA and DAPA entirely, um, but he has kept issuing the DACA Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals uh, permits. So if you were brought here as a kid, um, then you can still stay under Trump. But if you uh, are a parent of somebody brought here, if you're a parent who brought somebody here illegally and you're illegal, uh, you no longer would get, even if the courts agreed with it, uh, you no longer would get protection under the executive branch uh, decision here. So that would have been, by the way, five million new work permits. Um, it would have given five million people work permits, and you know that would have had an, an effect, I think, on employment in some parts of the country. Not on a massive scale, but it certainly would have had an impact. Um, now, we, so we, we have to wonder: Is Trump just taking this step by step, or is he um, really preparing? I, I think, or you know, has he changed his mind? Right? Is, is he preparing to do more, and is he going to get rid of DACA? Now that's. A lot of Republicans like DACA, so that will be interesting to see where he where he ends up on this issue. Um, by the way, also, I can't just talk about immigration without mentioning that the wall has got to get built because if he doesn't start building this wall, and I know he's got time, uh, and he followed through with one promise last night with DAPA, Deferred Action for Parents of Arrivals. DACA is still in effect, though, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. But build the wall, build the wall. That was the chant all during... Trump's campaign and to go into the midterms, which well, it's already summertime, uh, the fall, you're going to have some fierce battles over legislation and over the budget. 
and the midterms are going to loom over all of this. And as I've said to you, and others have too, if Trump loses the House, they're going to impeach him. Okay, so the the stakes here are no less than that. Um, but if he doesn't get the wall at least started, I think the opposition is going to have quite a day with it. Uh, they're going to be able to run all of the uh, promises, all the times that Trump promised that he would go forward and build a wall. They can just loop this all together, and they'll be in a place where they can say that Trump's primary, uh, his primary platform promise of building a wall uh, has not come to fruition. And if that's the case, I, I do think you're going to have some people who are very frustrated and who are going to turn around and say, you know what, um, you know, he didn't keep that promise, and that might have an effect in the midterms. So he's he's got to he's got to build a wall. I mean, I know he got rid of DAPA last night, and I think the courts would have dealt away, dealt with that anyway. Um, but the wall has to get done this fall, or else it is going to be a rough session, I think, in the midterms. And if that gets bad enough, Trump impeachment looms over the horizon if the Democrats take the House. I want to talk to you about Walmart and Amazon and some big moves in just a few. Stay with me. I'm somebody who gets excited about food. I like food a lot. Um, I probably spend too much money on food based on what I make, uh, and I'm very particular about, for example, my bacon and my eggs and uh, uh, meat. I'm very into certain quality and standard of uh, meat. And anyway, I I like food a lot. And the term foodie has kind of become a disparaging term for people that take photos of their food at restaurants. I don't do that. It's like, oh my gosh, like, look at this thing that's on my plate. It's like amazing. They like drizzle the sauce on it. Like, I don't do that. I'm not into, you know, nobody really wants to see. It's like, oh, dude, did you see this charred octopus salad that I have on my plate? Nobody cares. So um, I do pay attention, though, to uh, the different methods that we have now to get food. And in New York City, for example, there are a couple of delivery services where you can go. I can sit on my smartphone, push a few different uh, push a few different buttons on the screen and have food delivered to me in within an hour with one service, but certainly within 24 hours with a much bigger service. So I can do all my grocery shopping from my smartphone, which is which is pretty amazing. I mean, here we are, you know, 30 years ago, people wouldn't have. Well, if they they, they thought this would be a future where they were flying cars, that's probably a ways off, too. Um, But you can get all your groceries on your phone. Uh, And you'd hope that these improvements in technology will also mean that food prices will go down, although it feels like that hasn't really happened. Although maybe that's just because I'm always drinking, you know, organic, sustainable, hormone-free milk um, instead of just like M-I-L-K that you can get at CVS. But a big big thing happened today that might affect a lot of us, and that is that Amazon, which is the online retailer, I mean, I remember when it was just like, where do you get a book? You go to Amazon.com. I mean, now, what do you need? You you go to Amazon.com, and it seems to have it. It's just, it's incredible, and the speed with which it can get you items, and just the, the, the sheer magnitude of its catalog, of its offering, is crazy. Um, but Amazon today, on this, you know, Friday, June 16th, you know, it's kind of 
random, you know, a lot of people heading out to the beach or whatever, and or you know, going to the lake for the weekend. Amazon bought Whole Foods, which is also known to some of my friends or is, is derided as Whole Paycheck because the food is so expensive there. But Amazon.com bought Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. Now, this in and of itself, um, I think, tells us that food and where we're getting our food, this is all going to change very rapidly. Um, your the same way that your neighborhood bookstore is uh, has been largely put out of business, except maybe some of them have held on. But most most small bookstores, even Barnes and Noble, forget about small bookstores, even massive chains were crushed by this. And I remember HMV with CDs before the digital music era when everyone was just downloading everything. Uh, I remember when HMV was this huge store that would sell CDs to people. And you'd go in there, and it was this whole experience. You want to get a cool CD, and then it was all downloaded, and HMVs all went away, and you know, Virgin Megastores, and those went away, and you know, then Barnes and Noble, and that's gone away, uh, and bookstores have gone away. I think you know your neighborhood grocery store is in trouble. Um, I think your local grocer is going to have a tough time here competing. Because Amazon's logistics and technology and delivery services are going to be so superior and so all-encompassing that they're just going to be able to. I mean, I, I, as much as you may be like, well, I like my local grocery store, and you know, I, I I like the people that work there and everything, and I totally understand and appreciate that. Your local grocery store, pretty soon in the next couple of years, is going to be competing against. Hey, what food do you want? We'll deliver it to you. You don't even have to leave your home. And we'll get it to your door, and it'll be at the best price you can possibly get, and maximum level of freshness. That's going to be really hard to compete with. Uh, and what does that mean, by the way, for a lot of, you know, a lot of gr grocery stores employ a lot of people. Now you could say, oh, Buck, the Amazon warehouses where they're going to have this food and they're going to move it out. Maybe there'll be jobs there, and there'll be some transfer of jobs, but. It's kind of like with retail. You know, retail stores are in a lot of trouble. 10% of jobs in this country are, in fact, in retail stores. And those jobs are not coming back. There may be a displacement into other, other areas. But when you can buy the size, the, the shoe, the shirt, whatever it is you want online, uh, it's not clear at all why you would necessarily go to a store unless it's an experience, right, unless they can create a physical brick-and-mortar experience for you that's superior to what you would get from just an online shopping experience. And, uh, oh, by the way, bonobos, uh, which are a kind of chimpanzee, uh, a, a small chimpanzee, um, but are also a clothing brand. Bonobos was purchased today for uh, millions, many millions of dollars. I forget what the exact price was. By Walmart. Ah, Walmart is buying a kind of high-end uh, boutique. I mean, not a high-end like Chanel, but, you know, a, a fashion label that has done reasonably well. And they're still going to be selling it under the Bonobos brand, but Walmart's going to be handling the logistics. So now Walmart's picking off clothing brands. You see what's happening here is there is a consolidation by these tech giants, there's a consolidation of of brands that uh, you know have already been established 
under these uh, behemoth uh, mega companies like Amazon and Walmart uh, because they have the cash to buy them and they have the delivery mechanisms in place to blow anyone else out of the water who tries to compete on price or on service for that matter. Uh, look, I buy a lot of stuff off of Amazon. Uh, I have gotten so lazy now that I'm like, I need toothpaste, Amazon Prime. I need some deodorant, Amazon Prime. You know, I mean, you, you can just, I mean, it's great. I have to stop myself from just buying used books off of Amazon too. Problem with buying the used books, by the way. You can get the used book for 99 cents, but the shipping is always like five bucks. So it's not as cheap as you think it is. Um but, you know, Amazon has completely changed the uh, the actual physical book business. It wasn't as much of it. It didn't get rid of it entirely the way people, I think, thought they would with the Kindles and the downloads. Uh, I, do, I do both. Right. I'm a I'm a actual tactile physical book owner. I have a bookshelf with many books that I treasure on it. Uh, and I also have a Kindle that I use pretty frequently. And I have a Kindle app on my phone. I'm sometimes pretty antisocial and sit at a bar by myself in New York City, eat dinner and and read my Kindle. Um, and I think that's great, by the way. I, I highly recommend it. Why is that weird at all to people? You go to a bar, you sit there, you order food. I mean, this is completely acceptable as far as I'm concerned. Like, oh, don't you feel weird eating alone? No. No, I do not feel weird eating alone. In fact, sometimes it's really great to just enjoy the food and not feel like you have to engage in some kind of conversation. Uh, but anyway, so I, I do recommend that to you wherever you are across the country. If there's a place that has a good burger and you don't feel like cooking, you know, just in your solo, just just roll the bar yourself. Sitting at a table across from an empty chair, that that feels a little weird to me. I've done that, too. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an unusual dude. Uh, but sitting at the bar and ordering is great. You know, and some of the people will chat you up. Bartenders friendly. Anyway. Back to uh, this massive acquisition, a $13 billion acquisition of Whole Foods, which is the gourmet high-end grocery chain uh, that really brought organic uh, organic food to be, uh, was part of organic food becoming a national phenomenon. Um, and I mean, look, but it is really, it is expensive. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Whole Foods, the stuff in there is, is quite pricey. I, I always thought uh, it's been bought by Amazon. Amazon has... Uh, all these warehouses ready to go and they're just going to be able to create a you know certainly in every major city and even probably mid-sized to smaller cities across the country I don't know how this will affect rural areas uh, but in, in any you know if you live in in a city or in the suburbs of a city Amazon's going to be able to do for you uh, for groceries what it does for books and this is going to have a this is going to change this is going to change employment in the grocery industry and i mean this this company is it feels more and more like we're going to be left with five major companies that do like 80% of the retail and and uh 80% of the retail business in this country you know it feels like the consolidation is happening at breakneck speed and and you'll you'll see amazon amazon walmart these are massive logistics and technology company. Amazon's more a tech company. Walmart's more about the logistics, right? But, but those go hand in hand. Uh, it, it's not possible for the little guys to compete with them. It, it's not possible uh, to set up a tiny brick and mortar shop and compete on price. So now you have to start thinking about whether you can do the, uh, you have a you know unique product, you can do craftsmanship that's above 
but can be machine made. I mean, there are certainly ways that uh, other smaller retail businesses, I mean, they're not all going to go away, but HMV, Virgin Megastore, Barnes & Noble, uh, now whatever your local grocery store is, I don't know where you are across the country, it varies, the chains vary. But if I'm one of them right now, I got to figure that, you know, mm, days are numbered. I mean, maybe the best case scenario is Amazon buys you out because they're just going to come in and that's going to be that's going to be that. Um, anyway, team, I'm going to hit a quick break here. Uh, we've got much more show, including a, a fascinating history of witch trials and witch hunts. Uh, President Trump has been mentioning how he's in the midst of a witch hunt, which I agree. I agree that he is. But I want to tell you about actual witch hunts and witch trials because it's a part of history that I don't think gets nearly enough attention. Sure, there's a Salem witch trials, which we've all heard of. I'll talk about that. But there was a lot before that, too, and a long history stretching back millennia of witches. We'll get into that and much more. Stay with me. Welcome to America Now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Well, I respect the move, but the entire thing has been a witch hunt, and uh, there is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign but I can always speak for myself and the Russians. There we have the president of the United States, Donald Trump, referring to a witch hunt against him. And I, I know that this has now become a commonplace term for uh, any proceeding that is not about justice, but is meant to serve some uh, political end, usually as a result of a, of a frenzy. Uh, it has... Very deep historical roots. In fact, I wanted to take a little time on this Friday to do a, a history deep dive on witches, witch hunts, witch trials. Uh, of course, ending with the most famous uh, trial in, in all of uh, witch history, which would have been in uh, Salem. But first, let's just talk about witches and how we got to witch, uh, witch hunts, witch trials because they have a long-standing uh, history here, uh, going back m many centuries. And uh, the first witch ever, that we know of at least in literature, well, it depends on what you view as literature and what you view as the inspired word of God, of course. Uh, but you have references to witches in uh, Deuteronomy, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, you have... In Deuteronomy 19, uh, it says, "Anyone who or Let there be not found among you anyone who immolates his son or daughter in the fire, nor a fortune teller, soothsayer, charmer, diviner, or caster of spells, nor one who consults ghosts and spirits or seeks oracles from the dead. Anyone who does such things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of such abominations, the Lord your God is driving these nations out of your way. 
in a more uh, succinct reference to witches, witchcraft, and uh, those who are uh, doing the spell casting of the devil, Exodus 22, uh, 18 has, Do not allow a sorceress to live. Um, but perhaps the most famous ancient reference of all to sorceress uh, or to a sorceress or a witch is in the Odyssey, uh, the companion to the Iliad, right? The great siege of Troy, and then the Odyssey when Odysseus is trying to make his way home. That's where you have uh, the, the first great literary reference to a witch, and it's Circe. Those of you who are Game of Thrones fans, I'm sure, will take a moment to pause and say, oh yeah, Circe, like the evil queen in Game of Thrones, although it's spelled uh, differently. But here's how they describe Circe. Here's how Circe, the witch, in around roughly the 8th century B.C., uh, this, is how they, this is how they write of Circe. Thence we sailed on, glad to have escaped death, though we had lost our comrades and came to an Aegean island where Circe lives, a great and cunning goddess whose his own sister to the magician Aetes, for they are both children of the sun by Percy, who is daughter to Oceanus. We brought our ship into a safe harbor without a word, for some god guided us thither, and having landed, were there for two days and two nights, worn out in body and mind. When the morning of the third day came, I took my spear and my sword and went away from the ship to reconnoiter and see if I could discover signs of human handiwork or hear the sound of voices. Climbing to the top of a high lookout, I espied the smoke of Circe's house, rising upwards amid a dense forest of trees, and when I saw this, I doubted whether, having seen the smoke, I would not go on at once and find out more, but in the end I deemed it best to go back to the ship, give my men their dinners, and send some of them instead of going myself. This is Odysseus speaking in the first, or writing in the first person here. When they reached Circe's house, they found it built of cut stones on a site that could be seen from far in the middle of the forest. There were wild mountain wolves and lions prowling all around it, poor bewitched creatures whom she had tamed by her enchantments and drugged into subjection. They did not attack my men, but wagged their great tails, fawned upon them, and rubbed their noses lovingly against them. As hounds crowd round their master when they see him coming from dinner, for they know he will bring them something, even so did these wolves and lions with their great claws fawn upon my men, but the men were terribly frightened at seeing such strange creatures. Presently they reached the gates of the goddess's house, and as they stood there they could hear Circe within, singing most beautifully as she worked at her loom, making a web so fine, so soft, and of such dazzling colors as no one but a goddess could weave. That's, well, from there we go to Circe drugging the men, turning them into pigs. Uh, Odysseus, because he is the, the clever Greek king, outsmarts her, and, of course, because, I mean, this is an adventure story, takes her to bed. And they pretty much party on the island for two years after that, uh, before Odysseus continues to make his way home. Um, but there is a long—so so just to establish, there's— witches have been a part of literature and a part of uh, superstition stretching back for, well, into truly ancient uh, ancient times. But for the purposes of our discussion, a witch hunt or the witch trial that follows it uh, came into prominence in around the medieval period. Now, you had 
Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, saying that, uh, or in his uh, philosophy, in, in his theology, there could be no such thing as a witch because only, or, or even satanic power, because only God had the power to bend the laws of the universe. So for a while, uh, it wasn't the case that you had a lot of witch hunting within the, the Christian faith. But then things started to change uh, around the medieval period, early medieval period, uh, and you had in 1208 Pope Innocent III, because of the various heresies that the Catholic Church was battling at the time, uh, he attacked the uh, Cathars, who were heretics, and he said that they were, uh, they believed in a world in which God and Satan were at war, um, and the church, to criticize them, said that, that in fact they worshipped uh, the devil, that they were devil worshippers. It wasn't just that they believed in an active battle between God and Satan on earth, uh, but that they were in fact worshippers of the devil. Uh, and then later on, you had uh, Thomas Aquinas in his uh, Summa Theologica makes the case that witches seduce men, lead them into temptation. And so you start to see uh, two things coming together. One is the notion of heresy and witchcraft going hand in hand, and the, all the, the terrible uh, battles, the sectarian uh, bloodletting within medieval Europe over this issue getting tied in with the notion of witchcraft. If you were a heretic, if you believed in some other uh, interpretation of uh, Christianity from what was dogmatic in, in Rome, uh, you could be viewed as, well, not just a heretic, but also they would look in your community for witchcraft or sorcery. Uh, so you get into the mid-1400s, uh, and that's when things really explode on the witchcraft and witch hunt front. And for a, a little over 150 years, from roughly 1500 until the late six, or mid to late 1600s, you had in Europe alone tens of thousands of suspected witches that were executed. Uh, this also became a part of the Inquisition, um, but it would happen in towns and, and cities all across Europe. Uh, there were ma major trials in a whole variety of, of places that became quite famous um, because of, well, first of all, the way that they would try to figure out if somebody was a witch is to this day... Uh, well known, well known to many of us. There were tests to see if a witch could swim. So they would they would strip a witch, uh, an alleged witch, uh, down into her undergarments, and then they would uh, throw her in the water to see if she would sink or float. Um, they believed that an innocent person would sink, but a witch would float. Uh, they didn't really have much of an understanding, I suppose, of of basic physics. Uh, so that was one way. Uh, they had a prayer test, so they had, they had suspected witches recite a prayer, and if they made any mistake, if there were any errors in this, it could be seen as evidence of their, their guilt. I mean, this reminds me of like my most terrifying days in Jesuit school. Uh, you, you did not want to make any mistakes reciting uh, any prayer or during exegesis of the Bible. There was a test, of course, of the cake, 
and this is completely uh, uh, insane. I mean, all of this stuff is, but what they would do is they would bake a, a cake using uh, urine and ashes and some kind of grain, uh, urine, of, urine from the, the victim, and then they would feed it to a, a, what they call a familiar, which is an animal helper of somebody who engages with the devil or a spirit, and then if there was a spell for the animal, uh, you would know that that person was a witch. Uh, and then perhaps uh, um, among the most famous, I mean, I know the, the possible drowning is a very well-known uh, technique of establishing who's a witch and who's not. They would be stripped and examined in public looking for any kind of a, a mark of the devil. And this has come down to us, by the way, you'll see this even in movies and pop culture about witches, that there's a mark of the devil on a witch. Uh, and those who are doing the examination would be specifically looking for a, a witch's teat, for example, which would be considered a, an additional nipple somewhere. But as you can imagine, uh, in the uh, feverish and insane rush to try and find a witch, sometimes they would decide that uh, a birthmark, a scar, any uh, any imperfection of the skin really uh, could become co- or could be used as evidence of a witch mark. And they would sometimes remove, burn, cut off this part of the body. Uh, but this was another tactic that they used, or an- another test, I should say, that they used to try and figure out whether somebody was a witch. Uh, so you can see how I mean superstition and uh, pre uh, pre Christian superstition filtered into all of this because yes while Europe was Christian in the medieval period there were still a lot of leftover traditions uh, local rituals and the concept of witches continued on you also not just had heresy but then a uh, a, a melding of witches as also those who seduce men in the medieval period as a means of this is where you get the whole Christian sexuality tied into uh, church doctrine and superstition. And in fact, this leads to uh, to to characters or or to demons known as incubi and succubi or, or an incubus, which is also the name of like a relatively decent 90s uh, rock band uh, and, a, and a succubus. And they were demons that would seduce men and women, obviously, considered the, the succubus was female, would seduce men, and the incubus was male, would seduce women uh, in their sleep. Um, and this was also used by some as, a, as an explanation for what is medically referred to as nocturnal emission, which uh, I will let you figure out what that is on your own time. Um, but this was a church, a, a church discussion, and that was what they said caused it. So the incubus and the succubus became well-known characters, and so those who pr- pr- uh, practiced witchcraft also there was an, there was a uh, level of seduction and sexual deviancy that was tied into all of this, which of course is at odds with our thought of uh, witches, perhaps most famously in pop culture in modern times, as having long. A long uh, hooked nose and long fingernails and blue skin and uh, a black hat and riding a broom and with the cats and all that. But some of those elements, cats as familiars and uh, certainly casting spells, have their origins from over 
uh, over a, a millennia ago. In fact, a couple thousand years ago, you can go back and there's talk of witches casting spells. Um, but this got even more heated and became an even bigger issue to the the craze in Europe and then even briefly in America in the 1500s and 1600s of witchcraft and witchcraft and witch trials. I want to talk to you more about that, but I'm going to have to hit a quick break. We'll talk about the Salem witch trial in just a few. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. Witches hit the big time in terms of culture with Macbeth. You'll recall, I'm sure, from a high school English class when Banquo and Macbeth are greeted by three witches. And there is, of course, that famous sequence of witches around the cauldron. uh, And they say, In the poisoned entrails throw, Toad that under cold stone, Days and nights has thirty-one, Sweltered venom sleeping got, Boil thou first in the charmed pot, Double, double, toil and trouble, Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Now, that's uh, 1606 when it comes out, but this was a a very serious issue in terms of uh, what was going on in the 1500s and then into the 1600s in Europe. In 1480, so witches were well known, but in 1484, the concept of witches, uh, Pope Innocent announced that some German uh, heretics were Satanists and that they were meeting, uh, they were meeting with demons. And in fact, he asked some of his, the Pope asked friars uh, to create something called the Malleus Maleficarum, the hammer of witches, uh, which was meant specifically to get rid of the previous Christian orthodoxy that there was no problem with witches because only God could have powers on this earth that would bend the laws of nature. So the Pope had a couple of senior members of the Church write something specifically, uh, remember the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, to the Hammer of Witches, make it a, a now a necessity uh, to hunt down and kill witches because they were, in fact, a scourge, a real uh, problem. And this leads in the, into the 1500s to what I mentioned, which were uh, a number of mass—well, uh, over a period of time, what turned out to be mass execution of women accused of this, of, of witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, they were also accused of performing abortions. They were accused of stealing— um, male body parts. Uh, there were all kinds of accusations that were leveled. Uh, the numbers aren't exactly known. About eight out of ten killed were women. There were some men put to death for sorcery, um, but mostly we're talking about women being killed for witchcraft here. And uh, you're looking at Germany with the highest numbers, probably in the 30,000 range, uh, more like 10,000 in France over this period of call it 1500 to 1650. Uh, And there were far fewer of these in England um, and in Ireland because of rights of the accused. Um, But there was a very famous Scottish, uh, a Scottish hysteria over witches. And in 1591, King James VI of Scotland, who later on became King James I of England, uh, was paranoid because he was part of a, a trip, uh, a voyage, 
to Scotland and there was a bad storm when he went to pick up his princess, as one does, uh, Anne of Denmark, and six Danish women uh, uh, confessed to this because the ship's captain blamed it on witchcraft, and they actually got six Danish women to confess. And then once he got back to Scotland, King James VI uh, authorized an inquisition of sorts for witches. Uh, He authorized witch hunts, and in North Berwick, uh, there were dozens of women who were burned at the stake, burned alive in 1591, for witchcraft um so this eventually it it uh it stopped in england in 1682 that was the last time uh, the english put anyone to death for uh witchcraft and the lord chief justice sir francis north was instrumental in in getting rid of this he was saying that look this this the evidence that they're putting forth here is all nonsense but you will you will recall we have not yet talked about the most famous American witch trial, the Salem witch trial, uh, which occurred up in what is now Massachusetts. Uh, I want to get into just a little bit of that, and then I promise we're going to switch topics. But witch hunts, the history of witches, that's what we're talking about here on Freestyle Friday. We'll be right back. Albeit the business of this witchcraft be very much transacted upon the stage of imagination, yet we know that, as in treason, there is an imagining which is a capital crime, and here also the business thus managed in imagination yet may not be called imaginary. The effects are dreadfully real. Our dear neighbors are most really tormented, really murdered, and really acquainted with hidden things which are afterwards proved plainly to have been realities. I say then that as a man is justly executed for an assassinate, who in the sight of men shall with the sword in his hand stab his neighbor into the heart, so suppose a long train laid unto a barrel of gunpowder under the floor where a neighbor is, and suppose a man with a match perhaps in his mouth out of sight set fire unto the further end of the train, though never so far off. This man is also is to be treated as equally a malefactor. Our neighbors at Salem Village are blown up, after a sort, with an infernal gunpowder. The train is laid in the laws of the kingdom of darkness, limited by God himself. Now the question is, who gives fire to this train, and by what acts is the match applied? Find out the persons that have done this thing, and be their acts in doing it either mental or oral or manual, or what the devil will, I say, to determine a matter so much in the dark as to know the guilty employers of the devils in this work of darkness is a labor, this is a work. Those are the words of a letter from John Richards in 1692 uh, with regard to the Salem witch trials. Now, John Richards was a colonial military officer and magistrate writing his thoughts about what was going on at the time. Now, the Salem witch trials uh, happened in colonial Massachusetts starting in the year 1692 and ending in 1693. Uh, This is in the American lexicon where we get the notion of a witch hunt, as President Trump has referred to this special counsel investigation into his conduct and into the allegations, increasingly flimsy allegations, of Russia collusion with his administration. 
But if we go back to the late 17th century in the Massachusetts colony, uh, you see that there was a form of hysteria that overtook, uh, that overtook the people of Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, there were uh, over 200 people who ended up being accused of witchcraft in one form or another. Now, witches are uh, servants of the devil, and familiars are servants of witches, usually animals. Uh, this is where we get cats, and this is also um, something that has gone on through the ages, this notion of witches as being able to enchant animals. Um, and only 20 people of the 200 accused in Massachusetts in 1692 to 1693 were executed, and, and eventually the colony realized that this was a terrible mistake. Uh, most of those, and, and apologized for it, and made some form of reparations to the families, most of those killed were hanged, although one man who was accused of, of sorcery and involvement with witchcraft was uh, killed by having stones placed on top of him and crushing him. And perhaps it's easiest to start our, our brief look back into this moment uh, of Puritan lunacy. And remember, this was a Puritan society, so notions of good and evil and the devil and religiosity were intensely uh, and closely held beliefs. Uh, and there was some strife in Salem, which is current-day Danvers, Massachusetts, by the way. Uh, Salem Village, which was in the Mass Massachusetts Bay Colony, is what we're talking about. And Salem Town uh, later became what's known as Salem Today. So there was Salem Village and Salem Town. We're talking about Salem Village. Uh, so those of you living in Danvers, I'm sure you know all about this up in Massachusetts. But back to 1692 Salem, uh, you have the Reverend Paris and... Here is how the uh, Smithsonian Magazine described the outbreak. In January of 1692, Reverend Paris's daughter Elizabeth, age 9, and niece Abigail Williams, age 11, started having fits. They screamed, threw things, uttered peculiar sounds, and contorted themselves into strange positions, and a local doctor blamed the supernatural. Another girl, Anne Putnam, age 11, experienced similar symptoms. On February 29th, under pressure from magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, the girls blamed three women for afflict afflicting them. Tituba, the Paris's Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly, impoverished woman. All three women were brought before the local magistrate and interrogated for several days, starting on March 1st, 1692. Osborne claimed innocence, as did Good, but Tituba confessed... The devil came to me and bid me serve him. She described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a black man who wanted her to sign his book. She admitted that she signed the book and said that there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. All three women were put in jail. With the seeds of paranoia planted, a stream of accusations followed over the next few months. End quote. So once this got started, uh, you can imagine it, it took over the imaginations of many in this little colonial town uh, in Massachusetts, this little village. In more modern times, uh, we can refer back to uh, Arthur Miller's uh, The Crucible, which is loosely based on the uh, whole notion of the of the witch trial, the Salem witch trial, and it is supposed to also be an allegory to the McCarthyism in the United States, and this whole notion of Soviet penetration of America was false. 
Uh, as it turns out, that's not the case. Interesting that uh, Ar- Arthur Miller, um, with his uh, the crucible with with the crucible, uh, was also a guy who had his socialist tendencies and was really rewriting history, or not rewriting history, but redirecting people's uh, perceptions of history. And then there's also the Scarlet Letter um, by Nathaniel Hawthorne about the Puritan uh, Puritanical Massachusetts Bay Colony. And that tells the, that tells the story of Hester Prynne, um, but people often get these works confused. Uh, the Scarlet Letter is just about shaming and uh, the, 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 a true patriarchy. I mean that that really is. Now you can start to talk if you're talking about the Scarlet Letter. Then discussions of uh, this most recent HBO. I'm sorry, not HBO. Hulu, the, the Handmaid's Tale. Then you can start to make some some comparisons that perhaps uh, make some sense. But uh, you had Hawthorne with uh, The Scarlet Letter. You had The Crucible by Arthur Miller, which I'm sure many of you have read. And to this day, the whole notion of the witch trials at Salem are uh, one of the moments in our history that are an example of people who are overtaken by the hysteria of a period in time, lose a sense of what is right and wrong, lose a sense of justice, lose a sense of their common humanity with the accused, uh, decide to settle scores, whether personal or political, and uh, justice is lost in that moment of uh, paranoid mob mentality. So yeah, I think a witch hunt is in fact a very apt way for Donald Trump to describe the Russia collusion investigation, and I hope you've enjoyed our little digression here into a history of witch hunts and witch trials and where witches come from. Just wait for the Halloween show. We're going to talk about the real Dracula. That's something to look forward to this fall, team. Uh, I, I love all that stuff. I find it fascinating. Uh, we're going to hit a quick break and finish up the show strong back in just a few. Stay with me. Well, this is something, team, that will uh, send me off into the weekend thinking to myself, oh, my gosh. Uh, courtesy of Heat Street, there's a petition with 175,000 uh, signatories already that is threatening a, quote, backlash if MSNBC hires more white conservatives. Uh, this is written by Joe Simonson, who is uh, the first and only ever uh, Buck Sexton intern. He was an intern for me. We actually had him on the show once. He was an intern for me at The Blaze uh, when he was in college, and I'm glad to see that he's now pursuing a journalism career. So clearly it was a pretty awesome internship because the guy ended up working in that field, despite my telling him, I'm sure, many times, uh, if you want to live a happy and peaceful life with economic prosperity and the prospects of a stable uh, family, uh, don't go into media because it's like playing the lottery and nobody wants to marry a guy who's just playing lottery tickets all the time. Yet here I am, baby, scratch off 2017. This is what I'm doing. And I thank all of you for listening to me so that uh, I am not entirely reliant on a scratch off lottery situation in order to uh, keep the lights on. But uh, Joe writes here uh, the following Progressives aren't happy with MSNBC's recent programming changes, and they're not afraid to speak out. In the midst of a number of new hires and an apparent shift to the center-right, some of MSNBC's most diehard liberal fans are circulating petitions demanding the cable news network go back to its progressive roots. 
The latest petition hosted on Credo Action urges network executives stop the white conservative hiring spree at MSNBC. Uh, all right. Now, th- this this tells you a lot about the current state of, of MSNBC when people are so comfortable uh, calling out that they, they just do not want uh, alternative voices. They don't want people like me. They don't want white conservative males on TV. And you, know, you just have to think from the perspective of being uh, well-informed and being an adept debater and understanding both the strengths and weaknesses of one's own position, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to have the other voice represented in some capacity on TV? Now, this often leads to the phenomenon that exists at a lot of the networks of let's put on whomever our dominant audience is, and in all but one case, that's obviously Democrats, left of center, whomever our dominant audience is, let's put on somebody that represents the other side that is either a caricature or is uh, really unappealing and will just get beaten up on TV, more or less. People love this um, because what we've seen is that most of those who are watching TV news um, are looking for the uh, validation of their own beliefs. They're looking to see that whomever's on TV uh, not only agrees with them, but is able to annihilate, slay, destroy, uh, bring down to knees uh, any person that would dare uh, dispute their side of things, right? And this means that the uh, cable news combat that you often see is rigged. It's like a boxing match where a guy knows he's supposed to go down in the second or third round. And I've told you what this is like in the past. If you're at a, if you're at a non-Fox network, uh, it means that if you're too good, they'll put you on ice. They'll, you won't get on TV for a while. If you play the game, which means you either sit there and are kind of quiet while you're scolded on TV, or more recently over the last 12 months, you think that your role in life is just to completely bash Trump. Everything that Trump does is terrible. Trump is destroying the Republican Party. All of that kind of talk, that will get you on TV. There are some places where uh, that's very, uh, that's very career-enhancing. Uh, for a conservative. Uh, If you're decent at defending Trump and you're telegenic and have some ability on your feet, then you're dangerous because it upsets the audience. The audience doesn't want to see anyone who has the capability of making a case that Donald Trump is, uh, well, just not the Antichrist, right? I mean, if you're a Democrat these days, you have to take the position that Trump is destroying the country or else you're some kind of traitor to the cause. It's not like there's any halfway here. Um, but there, the, back to this Heat Street piece and my old uh, friend and, uh, and former intern, now, now journalist, very proud of him, Joe Simonson. Uh, this is what he writes. Back in May, a protest was scheduled uh, to march on NBC headquarters after reports that progressive host Lawrence O'Donnell's contract might not get extended Uh, A petition on change.org to save O'Donnell's job received 16,000 signatures. Uh, Rumors also circulated that MSNBC president Phil Griffin uh, would be getting the boot in June. So you have some shakeup over there at MSNBC. And as that's happening, you're seeing that this this has become infested with the most... uh, hardline progressivism. And really what it is, is that the people that 
you know, CNN is for more mainstream Democrats um, who are left and who are crazy about all the Russia collusion stuff. But if you're somebody who uses terms like mansplaining and patriarchy unironically, if you think that those are useful words for your everyday discourse, if you think that these this is terminology that an educated person should be uh, should be utilizing to discuss uh, what's going on around them, uh, then you're probably watching MSNBC. Uh, what I think is fascinating is to see some of the other uh, progressive outlets that are trying to go even left of MSNBC. And what's there? You know, what what is left of the people that you see on that show every night who you know exactly what they're going or that network every night, you know exactly what they're going to say before they say it. Uh, there's no uh, moments of introspection. There's no, hey, maybe our side should think more about this. Uh, and the entire progressive agenda is the marching orders for the whole network. I mean, they were the, the pro-Obama network. What was interesting was that CNN fancies itself now as doing journalism, but it was more effective under the Obama administration as a seemingly centrist uh, news organization that was pro-Obama, but at least it had some sense of, well, we're doing journalism. It's pro-Obama, but we're doing journalism. Whereas now CNN and MSNBC are both having to fight it out for the title of the resistance, um, which we have to laugh at these. This is now what they're saying about themselves and all these different places, all these people that are opposing Trump, the resistance, you know, as if the people watching Rachel Maddow from uh, their dorm room are are engaged in some kind of uh, daring struggle against the forces of, you know, Trumpian fascism or something, and they might be pulled out of their beds by the Trumpian secret police in the middle of the night. I mean, it's just crazy. Well, anyway, I, I look. I, I mean, this weekend I'm going to force myself. I'm going to a wedding, so hey, I'm going to bring a. I'm going to bring spare socks with me. Uh, I'm going to wear comfortable shoes, the most comfortable shoes I can get away with. Uh, I practice what I preach, my friends. I'm probably going to bring a kind bar. Uh, when I dance, I'm going to let it rip and show everybody that Buck's got those funky moves. Um, I'm going to hit the hors d'oeuvres hard. I'm going to hit if there's shrimp there. If there's cocktail shrimp, that cocktail shrimp's going to not last very long because the buck's coming for it. Uh, but I'm also going to try to force myself. This is something that I've been uh, working on more to just at least take one day where I'm not connected to the matrix. Right. So Saturday is when I'm I wish it were Sunday. I know it's the Lord's Lord's Day of Rest. But Saturday is when I try to just disconnect. And I, I hope that you allow yourself to to. Just don't read anything, anything that says Trump in it or anything that says Democrat or Republican or Russia, uh, unless you're going to read like a biography of Peter the Great by Massey, uh, which I highly recommend. Just just take a breather from it all. I do. Uh, I hope you do, too. And even more importantly, I just hope you have a fantastic weekend. Uh, always an honor team. Every week that I'm able to come to this microphone and, and hang out with all of you is is a blessing. And I am uh, deeply grateful for it. So thank you for giving me your time. Some of you have been emailing me to tell me that you've been sharing the podcast. Uh, nothing makes me happier, and it really is a, a testament to what a wonderful and um, uh, giving group Team Buck really is. So please continue to do that. Tell a friend about the show. Download the podcast on iTunes. And until Monday, my friends, no matter what comes your way, as always, of course, Shield Talk.